Hello, and welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. The Bible can be intimidating, right? How do we make sense of it all? And what does it mean for our lives? I think the Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Let me tell you a bit about myself. In my career, I've been a Mission Start pastor, a lead pastor, a national ministry coach, and for the last decade, I've had the privilege of serving on the Time of Grace team. Today we continue with our series called The Grand Ands of the Bible. In this series, we look at important pairs of Bible words connected with the word and. In our last episode, we attempted to wrap our minds around visible and invisible. For me, the big takeaway was that the visible world is pretty easy to understand because we can see much of it. But the invisible world goes beyond our ability to comprehend it at least fully. Yet, there is great comfort in knowing that our invisible God rules over both the visible and invisible. The grand and that we are going to explore today is Jew and Gentile. It's a Bible thread that spans the Old and New Testament and links together all the peoples of the world. Let's start with a basic definition of each word before we dig into the individual deeper meanings and usages. In Jesus' day, the word Jew was someone whose homeland was Judea. Judea was originally one of the twelve tribes of Israel, namely the tribe of Judah. And get this, the Greek word Judeus can either mean Jew or Judean. A Judean was a person who lived in Judah. Now, the word Gentile basically referred to everyone who wasn't a Jew. The word Gentile was a catch-all for all non-Jews. And the phrase Jew and Gentile is used quite often in both the Old and New Testaments to refer to the two classifications of people living in the world. But it isn't as simple as that. I think we're ready for a deeper dive into those who were Jews. We'll start by traveling back in history to a time when there was no Jewish homeland and a time when there were no Jews living on this planet. That time was 2,000 years before Jesus was born, when Abraham walked the earth. Now keep in mind, Abraham's name in the early part of his life was actually Abram. God later changed it from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many. Abraham was not a Jew. He was a Chaldean from the city of Ur, located just north of the Persian Gulf. Today it would be the area around Basra, Iraq, not too far from the border with Kuwait. If you were around during the Iraq War in the early 2000s, you may recall that there was a ton of fighting in the city of Basra. Chaldeans were a semi-nomadic tribe known for their astrology and witchcraft. They were sometimes referred to as the little sister to Assyria and Babylon. They were not a military might, however. Say, I have a trivia question for you. Who was the famous ancient king who was born a Chaldean? It was Nebuchadnezzar II, king of Babylon, 
who marched on Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and initiated the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. You know, maybe famous isn't the best word to describe him. How about infamous instead? Abraham also did not grow up worshiping the God of the Bible, Yahweh. Instead, he and his family worshipped idols, false gods. In Abraham's day, the people of Ur worshipped the moon god, Nana. Not Nana, but Nana. He was a god whom the Chaldeans believed controlled the heavens and the life cycle on earth, everything from birth to death. He was considered to be the source of fertility for families, for crops, and for herds of animals. Among all of the gods in the region, and there were many, Nana was the supreme god. So Abraham likely was a moon god worshiper in his early life. In the city of Ur, there was a great ziggurat that was constructed around the time of Abraham. A ziggurat, if you don't know, is a rectangular-shaped stepped tower that served as a place of worship, and it often had a temple or shrine built at the top. This one in Ur was specifically dedicated to Nana, the moon god. And did you know that this ziggurat, built in the city of Ur 4,000 years ago, still exists today? At least the restored remains exist. Abraham lived in Ur along with his siblings as members of his father's clan. His father's name was Terah. While living in Ur, Abraham got married to Sarah. And uh, by the way, her given name was Sarai. God later changed her name too. Sometime after Abraham was married, Terah moved his entire clan from Ur to a city by the name of Haran. If you look at a current map of the Middle East, Haran would have been located near the border of Syria and Turkey. So Terah's clan left Ur in the southern part of the Middle East to go to the northern part. While living in Haran, Abraham met Yahweh for the very first time, because Yahweh appeared to him in a visible way. We read about it in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Lord, the name for Yahweh, told Abraham to leave everything, country, relatives, his father's house, and go to a different land. In this new land, the Lord promised that Abraham would become a great nation. This new land would one day be the homeland for the Jewish people. The Jews were the direct descendants of Abraham. From one man and one woman, God created the Jewish people. Think about this. Abraham was a worshiper of idols, man-made idols. In ancient times, the idols that people worshipped were viewed as, you know, distant gods who didn't personally interact or really much care about the people. They were off someplace else. People believed the gods exerted their divine influence through earthly things like weather and agriculture. So imagine Yahweh appearing to Abraham in a visible way, talking to him, making promises to him, and giving him instructions to go to another land. For Abraham, this must have been a unique and surprising event. The gods he had been worshiping never showed up to have a conversation.
At any rate, Abraham obeyed the direction given by Yahweh. He and Sarah packed up their version of a U-Haul and moved to the land of Canaan. Now, Canaan was the geographical area between Syria in the north and Egypt in the south and east of the Mediterranean Sea. It was the area that is essentially the country of Israel today, with a part of Syria and Jordan added as well. The book of Genesis tells us about Abraham's travels. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So we learn that Abraham began worshiping Yahweh. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament expands on Abraham's move to Canaan and his faith in Yahweh. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, that's because of his age, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. This new land was inhabited by Canaanites. The Canaanites were a collection of various ethnic groups that lived in separate city-states. We come across these ethnic groups throughout the Old Testament. For example, there were the Hittites, the Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemorites, I think it was, and Hamathites. At the time of Abraham, there were no national Canaanite governments. Each city or region was a government unto itself. And like the Chaldeans, the Canaanites were idol worshippers who gave homage to gods like Baal and Asherah. Throughout God's Old Testament times, the various groups of Canaanites were, unfortunately, a thorn in the side of the Jewish people. So with God's promises to Abraham, the Jewish people came into existence. Between Abraham's day and Jesus' day, however, there were many twists and turns. Let's briefly review some of them. Abraham and Sarah, after decades of waiting, finally had a miracle child named Isaac. Isaac grew up, married Rebekah. Uh, she was a woman chosen by Abraham's servant from among his own clan back in Haran. So somewhere along the line, they became believers in Yahweh too. Isaac and Rebekah had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Although Esau was the oldest, he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob also tricked his father into giving him the firstborn blessing. Jacob, whose name was later changed by God to Israel, had four different wives who gave birth to twelve sons. Jacob is the most interesting of people. By the way, I've started writing a book about Jacob's life. It will be available from Time of Grace in July of 2021. Jacob and his clan ended up in Egypt due to a famine, and because one of the sons, Joseph, became the number two ruler of Egypt. It's a long story. But if we skip ahead a few hundred years to the life of Moses, who lived around 1500 BC, God led the Israelites, another name for the Jewish people, out of Egypt 
and 40 years later, they would enter once again the land promised to Abraham. (laughs) Why it took 40 years to walk from Egypt to the land of promise is another long story. Under the leadership of Joshua, who was Moses' successor, the Israelites conquered the land and divided it into 12 regions. For centuries, the Israelites possessed the land. They eventually asked God for a king. First king was Saul, then David, then Solomon. After Solomon, the nation split in two. The northern ten tribes retained the name Israel, and the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin became simply known as Judah. Fast forward a couple hundred years, the Assyrians invaded the nation of Israel, defeated it, bringing an end to the ten tribes. Fast forward a couple hundred more years, and the Babylonians invaded Judah, and under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, that infamous Chaldean, defeated the Jewish people, hauled them off as captives to Babylon for the next 70 years. After the 70 years, the Persian king Cyrus, who is now in power, allowed the Jews to return to their homeland, settling around the city of Jerusalem. After the Jews returned to their homeland and after the Roman Empire came to power, the country became known as Judea, the homeland of the Jewish people. Wow, we just did a whirlwind tour through the Old Testament in a matter of minutes. The point of doing this is to show how the Jewish people came into existence in the first place and what their status was at the time of Jesus. Maybe a couple more thoughts on the word Jew. After the Babylonian captivity, the name Jew was applied to all of the descendants of Abraham who practiced the Old Testament laws that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. It didn't matter whether the person was from the northern ten tribes or the southern two tribes. It didn't matter if they were living in Assyria or Babylon or Judea. They were all considered Jews. It was a more inclusive um, people definition than just a geographical one. And then in Romans chapter 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul makes a distinction between someone who was a Jew outwardly and one who was a Jew inwardly. Paul described a Jew outwardly as someone who was a physical descendant of Abraham, who observed the outward practices of the law of Moses, and who did not accept Jesus as the promised Messiah or Christ. In contrast, Paul described a Jew inwardly as someone, and and again, it didn't matter if their bloodline was Jew or Gentile, a Jew inwardly believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. So even today, people who believe in Jesus would be considered by Paul as Jews inwardly. Isn't it comforting to know that our God, Yahweh, and his Son, who took on the human form of Jesus, are in control of world events? You know, I find great comfort in this when I'm feeling uncomfortable with what's going on in our world. Okay, let's move on to the word Gentiles. This word is a bit more complicated. As I said earlier, Gentiles is a collective word for all peoples, ethnic groups, and races who aren't Jews. The Hebrew word for Gentile is goy, G-O-Y in English, which means nation. In the Old Testament, goy is used for both the nation of Israel, but most frequently for non-Jewish nations. For example, in God's promise to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, the word for nation is goy. Abraham's descendants, the Jews, would become a great nation. 
However, when the plural of goy is used in the Old Testament, goyim, and especially when it is used with a definite article, the nations, it always refers to non-Jewish nations. In the New Testament Greek language, there are multiple words for Gentile, each with a nuanced meaning. The Old Testament word goyim, which means nations, has a counterpart in the Greek language. It is the word ethnos, which also means nation. It is a word similar to our English word ethnic. When this word is used, it refers to those who do not belong to the Jewish or Christian faith. It can be translated as heathen or pagans or just Gentile. An example of its usage is in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. There are a few times in the New Testament where ethne is describing people who do not believe in any god, but most often it is referring to people who believe in idols or false gods. A related word to ethnos is ethnikos. This word refers to someone who, again, is not a Jew, but a Gentile, heathen, or pagan. Jesus used this word in Matthew 5. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans, ethnicus, do that? Another related word is ethnikos. Again, it refers to someone who isn't a Jew. The Apostle Paul used this word in Galatians 2.14. When I saw that you were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? The context for this verse is the Apostle Paul calling out Peter one of Jesus' disciples, for not living in the freedom of the gospel and reverting back to Old Testament ceremonial laws. A very different word that is used to describe a Gentile is animus. The focus of this word is on a non-Jew who lives completely without reference to the Old Testament Jewish law. Paul used this word in 1 Corinthians 9. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, animus, I became like one not having the law, although I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law so as to win those not having the law. There's one more word that is used quite often in the New Testament to describe Gentiles. It is actually a subset of the word Gentile. Sometimes it is translated as Gentile, and other times it is translated as Greek. Just as the phrase Jew and Gentile is used uh, often, so is the phrase Jews and Greeks. The Greek word is Hellene. It is related to our English word Hellenistic, which refers to anything related to Greek history or culture. The New Testament's usage of Hellene is interesting. Sometimes it's used to describe people who were born as a national Greek, 
in the same way that people born in Germany are called Germans. I think an example of this is when Jesus spoke to the Jewish religious leaders who were looking to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? A second way that the word is used to categorize unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles. In Acts 18, we hear what the Apostle Paul did on his Saturdays. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. What was he attempting to do? Get both Jews and Greeks to believe that Jesus was the Son of God and Savior of the world. That's what had happened when Paul earlier visited the city of Iconium and Lystra. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Another way that the word Helene is used is to contrast non-believing Greeks with Jewish Christian believers. This is the most frequent usage of the word in the New Testament. An example of this usage is in Acts 16, where the Apostle Paul meets Timothy. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Timothy's mom was a Jewish Christian. His dad was an unbelieving Greek. You know, the reason for the New Testament's focus on the Greeks, I think, is twofold. One, because around 325 BC, Alexander the Great had conquered most of the known world, establishing the Greek Empire and the Hellenistic Age. And secondly, with his conquest, he established a world language, namely Greek. In the Old Testament, Jews and Gentiles were two distinct groups of people. From Abraham's descendants would come the promised Savior. The Old Testament Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles to reveal to them Yahweh. In the New Testament, the distinction between Jew and Gentile began to change. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, summed it up pretty well. He wrote, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one. But when did the shift toward oneness begin? Didn't Jesus, early in his ministry, send out his twelve disciples with the specific instruction that they are not to go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans? And he tells them, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel? So again, when did this shift toward oneness between Jew and Gentile begin? Well, it was the day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Up until this time, Jesus had been teaching primarily to a Jewish audience north and west of the Sea of Galilee. It is easy to miss the significance of the phrase, let us go over to the other side. Who and what were on the other side, east and south of the Sea of Galilee? It was the region known as the Decapolis, named for 10 Greek and Roman built cities. This was Gentile territory. With Jesus going over to the other side, he brought the good news of God's love to Gentiles as well. 
fellow Gentiles, thank God that he did. Jew and Gentile, it's one of the grand ands of the Bible, and it's an and that brings together all the peoples of the world. Did you know that there are more podcasts at Time of Grace besides mine? One of the shows is Time of Grace with Pastor Mike Novotny. A second one is called Grace Talks and features our other speakers. And then there is Little Things with Amber Alby Swenson. I'd like to encourage you to download them. They're great to listen to. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for another show from our, our Bible Thread series entitled The Grand Ands of the Bible. God bless.